Let's uh, turn with our, in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and let's continue going through this. And let's read, um, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 21 and 22 today. So let's, uh, let's read that. This is what the Word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we do come before you today. We're so excited, God, just to be in your house. I'm so grateful, Lord, to be able to be here with your people. And Father, to be encouraged, as Scripture says, by the encouragement of the Scriptures. I know, Father, that Monday through Saturday, it's so easy to become discouraged. And the devil has all week long to try to beat us down, discourage us, accuse us, condemn us. But Father, we seek to draw our sustenance, our nourishment today from your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at these various aspects of your faithfulness, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of just how blessed we really are. We thank you. We bless you. We ask that you speak to us the power of your spirit as your word is proclaimed for the honor of your son's name. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, you may be seated. Well, uh, yes, so just continuing on here in this text, uh, we're looking at what I've entitled the faithfulness of God at work in his people. And the reason why I entitled it that is that if you noticed in the text, God is being credited here with so much. God has done so many things for us. Just in this small text. And if you look, if you begin at verse 23, it really begins to uh, take the flow of thought really to a different direction. As a matter of fact, verse 23, all the way into chapter 2, verse 4, sort of uh, composes a different train of thought. That mainly focusing on what we will consider next week, Lord willing, dealing with Paul's apostolic joy. Uh, But today, I want to deal with God's faithfulness at work in His people. Now, having established something of the character of God, you remember that the Apostle Paul said in verse 18, as God is faithful. So he sort of asserts the faithfulness of God and then he justifies the faithfulness of God in the way that he works among the Corinthians and through the proclamation of his people. Verse 19 makes that clear, that the faithful God faithfully brought the gospel to the Corinthians through the preaching of Paul and of his associates. And then that faithfulness then was also manifested in his son through what he did in his son by fulfilling all of these covenant promises in Christ. And that's in verse 20. So now here, Paul sets out God's faithfulness in the activity that he accomplishes among the Corinthians as further proof of the grace of God among them. It's an interesting dynamic here that Paul sets out. It is the work of God and His faithfulness, but I want to make it a little bit more specific than that. What does it deal with? Namely, unity. 
That is the overarching work that God, or that, that God has accomplished between Paul and the Corinthians is this great unity in the church. But what I want to entitle triune unity. This is the work of the Trinity. So this is triune unity in the church. And we see that right from the presence of all members of the Godhead in verses 21 to 22. What an amazing thing that in such small real estate, if you would, in such close proximity, you have a full-orbed reference to the Trinity. Paul does this rarely, and Scripture does this rarely, where you have maybe one verse or two verses that includes the entire Trinity, the entire Godhead, but he does do it. And I would suggest that you read the book of Ephesians, because in Ephesians, beginning with verses 4 to 14, which is really a massive Trinitarian statement about our salvation, but then later in the book of Ephesians, Paul will repeat it over and over and over, that it is the work of the whole Godhead that is doing the various things in the book of Ephesians, but... You do have another example right here in 2 Corinthians at the very end of the book. This famous Trinitarian greeting of Paul. Chapter 13, verse 14. Just to show you just another maybe example of this. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Isn't that amazing? So that now Paul begins here to talk talk about this Trinitarian unity among the Corinthians and to draw their their sort of direction and their purpose for ministry and and really the whole Christian life around what this triune God is doing among us. Paul's point now, though, is that all of that work is a result of God's own sovereign prerogative and power. And he proves that in a couple of different ways. Obviously, everything he references here is a work of God. Notice he says, now he who establishes us, and then a series of things are mentioned, and at the very end of that clause he says, God. He finally gets to it. He who does this, he who does that, is God, or as one translator translated it, God Himself, trying to bring out that emphasis that it is the prerogative, the divine sovereign prerogative of God Almighty who has done these very things. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 31 or 30 and 31, where he says, It is by God's own doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us what? Righteousness, right? Sanctification, wisdom of God. So all of these things are what? God's doing. They are his own sovereign prerogative. And power. He is the one that does all of these things. But as a matter of fact, Paul gives us four things, in fact, that Paul does, or that God does. Notice, he gives us four things, and we know that because there are four verbs that are contained here. The very first one is this concept of God having established us. Established us. Amazing language now, folks. 
Paul uses very intentional, very specific, and very special language to sort of draw out what it is he's saying. These are not throwaway sentences. This is not just Paul being redundant, repetitive. This is not just Paul sort of belaboring the point. He is, he's, he's specifically choosing words that will emphasize some aspect of what God has done in uniting both preacher and parishioner, apostle and church, right? His, the evangelist and his converts. That's the point. He says God established us. You see that? And just sort of draw out the unity here. He established us. He says, with you. And then he goes on to talk about the locality of that being in the sphere of Christ. But Paul uses this word here, establish, which in the ancient world was common parlance for uh, commercial deals. It was used at different times to talk about legal transactions that would take place. And by the time this word, after its classical usage, came into the New Testament, the word came to mean something like firm, fixed, established, confirmed, something that is strengthened. For example, let me, use, let me show you just a couple places where this word is used. It's used in 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 1, verse 8, when he says uh, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end. You see that? He will establish you or confirm you or strengthen you or keep you fixed until the end. They're talking about our preservation. Also, Colossians says this, that we were firmly rooted and we are now being built up in Christ and established in your faith. That's that same word, established in the faith. Hebrews uses this word slightly differently. And it says here, don't be carried away. This is Hebrews 13.9. Hebrews 13.9. He says, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it is good that the heart be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Be confirmed. The book of Hebrews says, be established by grace. Don't go off into other things that don't profit. But the grammar here, amazing as I was pouring over this, The grammar here suggests several other things. Number one is the simple fact that Paul uses a present tense when referring to this reality of establishing us, which means to me that God is faithful to us to sustain us, to keep us, to uphold us Monday through through Saturday, Making a big deal out of it, because that's usually when things erupt, right? Here at church, it's kind of safe. We can come together, worship. Everybody's got a smile on. It's usually Monday through Saturday, all the chaos happens. That's when the phone calls come in. That's when I get the emails. That's when you have problems at work. But it is through all of our days, brothers and sisters, that God is actively, presently, and continuously upholding us, strengthening us, and establishing us together. See, this is something that we can't miss. This experience, Paul is belaboring the point 
that we understand we share in this. We fellowship in this. This is our life so that believers should be able to, in the hallways of the church, after church, not talk about football or basketball, my case, but that you talk instead of the things that you have in common according to the Scriptures. That our fellowship be deeply spiritual, not shallow or surface level, only talking about what happened at work. How was work? How's the family? How's the weather? Did you watch the game? But that you and I become deep people, deep people of God, brothers and sisters of depth, that can edify one another with the things that God is doing in all of our lives. And this is what He's doing. Another thing that the grammar suggests, if you look at that little phrase, He says, He established us with you in Christ. You see that? But He uses a specific preposition that means something more like into Christ. Towards Christ is another way that it's been translated. One commentator suggests that this prepositional phrase speaks of a Christward trajectory. That's amazing. I love it. Harris, in his commentary, speaks about Paul referring to how God has now, here he is, oriented us around Christ. Is your life oriented around Christ? Is Christ the very center and focal point of your life? Is He the basis of your life, the very center of it, the essence of it? So that when we boil you down to who you really are, are you a person who is about Christ? Books come out all the time, right? The Christ-centered life. Living Christ-centered. Being Christ-centered. But the Scriptures confirm this, that Christ-centeredness should be our life. Ephesians 4.15, talking about the corporate reality, our, cro- our corporate existence as a church, we should be growing in a Christward direction, just like this emphasizes. We have a Christward trajectory. Also, personally, we should be. 2 Peter 3.18, we should be growing in Christ. Growing in the knowledge and in the grace of Christ. You see the direction. You have a direction. You have a goal. Set goals for yourself in the Christian life. Be like Jonathan Edwards who said, resolved to do 70 different things for Christ. But one thing he resolved to do was this, that he would be in the Scriptures, he said, in one of his resolutions, he says, so steadily, so readily, so that I will be able to perceive myself growing thereby. Be in the Word in such a way that you clearly perceive yourself growing thereby. Don't be lazy with your Bible. Don't be lazy with your Bible reading. This week I wrote a blog entry for our website dealing with the, uh, the, the, the flood of digital and technology and technological, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, things that we're surrounded by. I mean, our generation more than any other, we are in an ocean of technology, aren't we? Uh, some teenagers sleep with their iPhone next to them so that they don't miss the last Facebook post or the latest tweet. 
Okay? They're sitting there sleeping with their pillow, and next to their pillow is their you know, iPhone, so they can tweet, 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 tweet. They cannot get off the grid, man. They can't unplug even to sleep. And I think that it's having an, an, an effect upon us. You know, there's a whole generation called millennials. Those that go from the ages of 19 to 30, 30 early 30s, and those who are just entrenched in this technology, technological, technocratic society that we live in, and it's saying it's having diverse effects upon us as a society. Sociologists have documented how technology is making our attention span lower than ever. We can't concentrate. We don't like looking at people in the face anymore. We don't like looking at people in the eyes. We don't like personal interaction with people. What do we want to do? We want to look into our screens because our screens are full of nice, pretty, shiny things like, like different apps and different things like that that are just so amazing. They look at you and you're no big deal compared to this app, right? The conversation I'm having on Twitter right now is much more interesting than what you and I have to talk about. But brothers and sisters, we need to be growing not just in our technology. Technology can be a very good thing. My, my sermon today is a result of technology. I, I typed my sermon on a computer. I used Bible software, <laughs> right? Of course, there are great benefits to technology. Oh, but we better never think that just because we are tech savvy that we are spiritually savvy. No, I, I, I still believe that you need to turn off your technological devices in order to spend quality time with God. You can't have a deep spiritual life with one eye on your Twitter account and one eye closed in prayer. No. God wants all of us. He doesn't care if you're a millennial. He wants your attention. He wants you to look Him in the eye, so to speak. He wants you to devote your heart to Him, to seek Him with all of your heart. And one way you do that is by entering into what Paul is talking about here and being in the stream of a Christ-word life, a Christ-centered life. Let Christ be your all-consuming passion. Brothers and sisters, can I remind you of one verse? Paul's passion, Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 3, excuse me after he lists all of his accomplishments, right? After he lists all of the things that could commend him to someone, religiously, ethnically, after he lists all of the things that he could boast in of himself, he says, I count these things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have, count, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. You see that? Let that be our ambition. Oh, I want to be in a church that's filled with people that are intoxicated with Jesus Christ. So that when I bump up against you, I don't just get the world, the trials, the burdens of life, but that you know how to interpret all of those things in a Christological way, in a Christ-centered way that reveals that above everything else in your life, Christ is still your treasure. Christ is still the center. Christ is still the focus. It's so important. There is so much to the Christian life, but there is nothing of the Christian life without a habitual pursuit of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
Because of God's saving work, believers therefore can be stable. We can be unified in a Christward direction. The exegesis also reveals something else. That God is committed to our strength, to being established. Notice how he does this. Uh, If you look back at 2 Corinthians there in the text, you'll see that he forms what many call an inclusio of exegesis. Meaning, he begins with one theme and he ends it with the same theme. Look at verse 24. Because he begins with the concept of stability, the concept of strength, the concept of confirmation, and he ends with it with just a little slightly different language. Verse 24, he says... For in your faith you are standing firm. You see that? Steadfastness is such a mark of the Christian life. No longer to be like children tossed here and there by the waves, by the trickery of men, by every wind of doctrine that blows in and out. But we can have this stability in our own lives. By placing so much emphasis, therefore, on the fact that it is God who is our guarantor of all of these things and our sustainer of all of these things together. That's the point. It's just the language here is so multifaceted, but that is the point that Paul, if you get too far away from that, you miss Paul's whole point here. Paul's whole point here is the togetherness, us with Christ, with you. You see that? That's the language of koinonia. That's the language of unity. That is the language he wants to get across. So Paul puts the onus on the, on the, on the Corinthians to trust in their covenant-keeping God who has made good on all of the covenant-keeping promises. That's his whole point. That's what he wants to do. Paul is yearning for them to see that. He is yearning for them to look, to, 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 to not allow their misconceptions of him to be an obstacle to seeing their unity in the faith. Unity that God himself has established by virtue of our shared union with Christ. I can tell you something about my ministry and my preaching that I am constantly going to belabor the point of our union with Christ. Because it it is because of our union together with Christ that all of the Christian life follows. John Murray said, the doctrine of union with Christ is the most essential component to all of the doctrine of soteriology, salvation. But let's look at what else God does. He doesn't just establish us, but it says here that He has also anointed us. Now, He who establishes with you in Christ and anointed us is God. You see that? So now this other aspect of what God, the faithful God, does for His people. So He sort of he leaves the language of commercial, uh, legal sort of terminology to a more prophetic or what we could even call a prophetic, priestly, and kingly language, right? Because the language of anointing has a deep Old Testament theology heritage. It is rooted in the Old Testament language of what it means to be anointed. God anoints different people, and throughout the Old Testament, He anointed priests, and He anointed prophets, and He anointed 
kings, prophets like Samuel, priests like Aaron, kings like David or Solomon, were all anointed by God. It meant that God was putting upon them some sort of divine summons, some sort of divine unction to carry out some sort of divine purpose. And that is the purpose of us being anointed as well. We are anointed for a purpose. We are anointed to carry out some service to God. Christ Himself being consecrated and anointed for His messianic work as the perfect prophet, priest, and king of God. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, there quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to do what? To do something. To preach the gospel to the poor. Today we talk about anointing. Charismatic circles. We'll talk about Pentecostal circles. We'll talk about person. You are so anointed by God because you have a good voice. But the language of anointing in the Bible doesn't refer to your talent. It refers to your service. It refers to what you do for God as you carry out certain ministerial services to Him. He says, He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And the Apostle Paul himself had this very same calling upon his life. As he's talking about and he's recounting his Damascus experience, Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. God had appointed him, though he does not use the language of anointing, it's still this consecration for a purpose. As Jesus says to Paul, I am sending you to do what? To do the same things that Christ did. To open the eyes of the blind. To take people from darkness to light, out of the dominion of Satan and to God. You see that? All believers, in fact, are anointed by God and enlisted into His service. I love it. When you become a Christian, God doesn't just call you to be a Christian so that you can stand now somewhere in isolation. No. You are engrafted into a community. You're engrafted into a church. You're engrafted into a body. You're engrafted into a family. And you play a specific function and role in that body. We all know Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians of a body, right? We can't all be the nose or the eye or the mouth or the ear or the hand. We are different parts of this body. But we are all essential. And we are all effective. And we all bring something to the table because we all have been anointed by God. We all have this unction. And this unction keeps us faithful to the Gospel. This Unction, this anointing, makes it so that when Christ anoints us and teaches, teaches us by His Spirit, He gives us His Spirit, He places His Spirit within us, and He gives us a discerning heart immediately by the operation of His Spirit directly imparted to the soul of man so that that will keep us not only from apostasy, but also from needing any external verification as to the validity of our faith. Let me show you. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. This is the work 
of the Spirit. This is what anointing is for. This is what it looks like. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. They need equipment. They need defense mechanisms. They need discernment. They need protection. And he says, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. Most commentators take that to mean that that anointing is the Spirit himself. He says, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. There is an immediate sufficiency that comes with the work of the Spirit so that when you become a believer exiomatically, meaning self-evidently, you hear the word of the shepherd. You hear the voice of the shepherd and other shepherds you will not follow. Other voices you will not hear so that when the Jehovah Witness or the Mormon come knocking at your door, you have a supernatural unction and anointing in your soul that, that tells you, like a lie detector, this person is off. This person is in error. This person is guilty of twisting the Scriptures to their own destruction. Paul is saying, we share in this experience. We share in this anointing. We have this equipment together. We have been consecrated for service together. Next thing, Paul doesn't just establish us and anoint us, but look now, he also seals us. So Paul now returns back to the language of commerce because in the ancient times, a seal was used to sort of lock into place certain documents, certain financial transactions, certain warranties, certain contracts. You would oftentimes legitimize them by a seal. You would put your seal on it, and sometimes the seal would either have your initial, it would have your name, or it would have some sort of mark indicating that you are the owner or author or the guarantor of such and such a thing. Well, this is the way that it works here. But I don't want you to miss that this seal, too, is Trinitarian. And this is why I said the Trinitarian unity of the church. Look with me to the book of Ephesians to see this. I know that most of you know that that's where the other verse is found, where the Spirit seals us. But I just want to draw your attention to one small detail that is so packed with meaning, and that is the language of in Christ, the language of union with Christ that is found here because it begins and it ends this whole language of being sealed. Ephesians 1.13 says, in Him, that is the language of Christ. The nearest antecedent is Christ. That's who it's referring to. In Him is referring to Jesus Christ. In Him, he says, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed, watch this, in Him. How many times do we skip over that? Sometimes we even paraphrase that. That, that verse, don't we? Having been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Hey, what happened to the in Him? <laughs> That's in there. You can't just, you can't just, you know, just brush, brush over that. You have to deal with that. You have to enjoy that. That's got a lot of significance. In Him is this phrase that he uses over and over in the book of Ephesians. En ho. It's just a little prepositional phrase to stress our union with Christ. 
our mystical, spiritual, positional union with Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. He uses it twice for emphasis. The work of sealing us involves several other components. Several other components, which really are just kind of talking about the same thing. But the Spirit provides us, provides us with the seal with so many benefits. Three things. Let me give you three things that the seal implies. Namely, authorship, authenticity, and assurance. Number one, authorship. A seal was a sign of ownership, in other words. It is a sign that God owns you. Harris, in his commentary, says, paraphrasing this verse, I marked them with a seal, thus indicating that something or someone belongs to me. That's what God is doing by giving us the seal. God's ownership of us also, therefore, implies two very important things, brothers and sisters, protection and submission. It means that as God being our owner, He possesses us. We are His. We are His property, right? And like a, and like a, a, a property owner, let's, let's think of a man who owns a farm and he's in his overalls and he's got his shotgun and you mess with his property, he comes out and starts shooting. Well, you are God's property, which means no one can just come and start messing with you, Right? Satan can't just come and start messing with God's kids. Persecution cannot just befall you. God owns you. He is your author, the author of your salvation, and He is the owner of you, the possessor of you. And your times, brothers and sisters, is in His hands. We are immortal until God calls us home. Get that? We are immortal until God calls us home. You can't die apart from the will of God. Don't you feel indestructible? Muslims can't kill you apart from the will of God. You cannot be martyred apart from God's sovereign will. It's just amazing to me. Jesus prays for this very protection. John 17, 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves, they are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, then he makes this request. Keep them in your name. You see that? The name that you've given me, that they may be one, even as I am one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Oh, there are so many Scriptures on this. Encourage yourself, brothers and sisters, with these Scriptures. Encourage yourself with the idea that it is God who is protecting you even this very hour from the evil one. God is protecting you right this very hour from self-destructing. God is protecting you this very moment from being swept away into the, 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 the ocean of dissipation that is becoming our culture. It is God, and by His power, He is protecting you. He is keeping you for a salvation, as Peter says, ready to be revealed at the last time. Our salvation is nearer now than we have ever than when we first believed. Hallelujah. We are being kept by the power of God and we are going to make it. 
if we're in Him. But don't think that that sovereign protection over your life in any way insinuates anything like a fatalistic attitude, a cavalier, sort of lukewarm, go easy, lay off the pedal, sort of put it into cruise control Christianity. It does not. Because with equal force, Scripture puts the onus upon us, brothers and sisters, to submit to the Lordship of Christ. God putting His seal on you doesn't just imply His ownership of you and doesn't just imply His protection of you, the keeping safe of His goods, but it also implies your submission to Him, your identification with the Lordship of Christ. A terrifying verse that I have been meditating on. Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one that does the will of my Father. What is the key component? Obedience. Jesus put it as succinctly as He could. Right? We, we often want that. Preachers, I get accused of that a lot. I've had people come up to me and say, just, just give it to me straight. Just, what are you saying with all that stuff up there? Right? I've had people tell me, get, you know, get, get all the grammar, get all that out of here. What are you saying? Well, Jesus gets right to the point. If you love me, keep my commandments. It can't be any easier than that. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that God will deal out retribution on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those little children on Friday night, those little teenage girls who were, who, were just, who were just throwing insult and just hurling accusation and insult and ridicule after ridicule at the Christians with the most detestable profanity and language, do not obey the gospel of our Lord. And the false gospel of love that is all over the world right now, will not save. God is love. All that matters is love. I can love God on my own as long as I have love. God loves me no matter what. God loves everybody. God loves the whole world. God loves everyone so much He will not send anyone to hell. Think of that. Think of the utter diabolical doctrine that Satan has foisted on the world taking the very love of God and turning it into the very vehicle that will damn people's souls for all eternity. This is what Satan does. He inverts the gospel. He inverts the gospel. He speaks it back into the world in a backwards and in a perverted, twisted fashion. Secondly, it also it also means authenticity. In other words, the seal of God also legitimizes something. It makes it known that what is sealed is good. That what is sealed is the, the legitimate thing. You don't seal something that you're not ready to stand behind. God doesn't put a seal on false converts. Paul does, or God doesn't put a seal on someone who is going to make a quick and swift profession of faith 
Like in the parable of the sowers, God doesn't seal tares. He doesn't seal goats. He doesn't seal children of the devil. He doesn't seal the wicked. He doesn't seal the ungodly, the the non-elect, to put it in sovereign terms. No, God is perfectly consistent with everything that He does. If He owns you, He only owns that which He will one day take full ownership of. That is what it does. And again, where do we see? I just want to sort of interject this. When the Spirit takes possession of us, it legitimizes our faith. But brothers and sisters, on a real practical level, where do we see the Spirit in our lives? You ever asked yourself that? You can't see the Spirit. The Spirit is not a corporeal person. He doesn't have a body. It's not a gas. You can't detect Him through any empirical means. So where do you see it? Where do you see the manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life? And as I was pondering this, I was driven to the only place that I could possibly uh, say with absolute certainty, this I can stand on dogmatically, that this is clear evidence that the Spirit is at work in my life, that He does own me, that He has sealed me, and that's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You know this verse, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the manifestation, in other words, it is the outgrowth of the Spirit of God. And how does the Spirit of God grow in your life? How does He manifest, in other words, how does the Spirit come to fruition in your life and in my life? One simple word or idea, holy living. A transformed life. Because the gospel of moralism cannot produce a transformed life. Doing rote, routine, religious things over and over and over still doesn't give you a love for holiness like you're supposed to have. It still doesn't give the necessary sanctification that we need in order to know the evidence of the Spirit's operation in our lives. It is only through a life of transformed, uh, of a transformed heart That is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, people can tell us they love God. People can tell us that they know God. People can tell us they respect the man upstairs. But unless there is a transformed life, unless the God of heaven through His Spirit has literally shifted and altered and transformed the very center of the core of your being, be very afraid. Be very suspicious of people's brief little light, whimsical confession to the greatest, grandest truths in the universe, namely the gospel. Now, I don't think the Spirit produces people like that. It is a seal of legitimacy. Lastly, it is also comes with assurance because a seal was also the mark that you were safekeeping something, that you were guarding or protecting something. It was a deposit, sort of synonymous and leading into our next point, but it was a, a safeguard. It was a promissory seal that the thing that was sealed was to be kept safe. It was a safe keep. 
Listen to what one commentator said. He said, if these three concepts are implied, God has branded believers as his property. He has attested to the reality of the status in Christ. That means the legitimacy. And he has also guaranteed their protection, listen now, in transit as his permanent and inviolable possession. Meaning a possession that cannot be violated. No one can break the seal that God has put over your life. No one can break God's seal the way that someone opens an envelope, right? No one can, can breach God's locket upon your soul. God has protected us in such a way that even while we are in transit, on our way there, in our upward, heavenly, Christward, Godward, eternal trajectory, nothing will interfere in between, ultimately. Yes, we'll have our ups and downs, and you've seen maybe the, the graph that Grudem and others will use in sanctification going up and down, up and down. But ultimately, look where it's going, it's going up. Yes, you might have peaks and valleys along the way of your pilgrimage, but ultimately, brothers and sisters, you are on a trajectory toward heaven and God's seal makes it so that that trajectory, that transit, cannot be aborted and it cannot be sabotaged. It can't be hijacked like Al-Qaeda hijacks a plane. You can't hijack a believer on his way to heaven. Fourthly, He not only establishes us, He not only anoints us, He not only seals us, but look, He also gives us the Spirit as a pledge. Isn't that what your Bible says? He has, the NAS says, He gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. That's what it says. And it's interesting, but that the more literal way that you can translate this is that He gave us the pledge of the Spirit. Now, the NASB has simply taken a little bit of license with that to try to explain it, right? It is the Spirit who God has given us, and that Spirit in us is sort of a pledge. It is a, it is a deposit, right? So whether you say the pledge of the Spirit or the Spirit as a pledge, the reality ultimately is the same. Three things are implied in this pledge. Number one, that we have something of a deposit or of a down payment even now, what the Scriptures call the first fruits of the Spirit. Even now, we have something of the ultimate payment to come. Number two, the pledge was also promissory in that the future full payment is certain and it will come so that we will receive, as Peter says, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, or as Paul talks about there in that same context, the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 23, we will receive, finally, the redemption of our body. That's what the pledge does. It makes certain that we are going to receive our glorified bodies, that our bodies will be glorified, that our bodies are going to be transformed. And then thirdly, if you remember the story of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38, verse 17, there you remember that Judah had given the woman Tamar a pledge. But what, the reason why scholars focus on that usage of the Hebrew word 
herabon, which is the Greek Septuagint use of erabon, which that's our Greek word, very similar. But the reason why they focus on that is because there the pledge is different than the full payment. He gave her a pledge, a staff, rope, a couple things, right? But he was ultimately promising to give her a goat. <laughs> that was the full payment. That pledge, those things, were one day going to be substituted for something completely different, namely a goat. Well, I don't know that Paul had that meaning in mind. That's probably not what he had. But there is some truth even there, even in that usage, there is some discontinuity with the experience of the Spirit now compared to the vastly superior experience of the Spirit in future glory. When the former things will be passed away, when He will do away with all of the former things, when all things, as Scripture says, will come become new, when He will give us the Spirit without limitation, when we will experience what the song that we sometimes sing, that we will be able to worship with unsinning heart. We will have the Spirit in full measure, like Jesus did. Jesus, it says, had the Spirit with, in full measure. But we, because we are still in this body of death, we still cannot experience the fullness of the ministry and the work of the Spirit. There is coming a time when all of the former things will be done away and a vastly superior, vastly better time will come. Now is the time for the first fruits. Then will be the time when death will be swallowed up by life. When that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 4. It's the time when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. But right now, you and I, we long for that time to come. We long for that time to come. And let me just end with this. That all of this to me means that God has gone through great lengths, brothers and sisters, to do two things. Number one, to give us the personal, special, intimate presence of Himself in our lives right now in the present. What we can call the already. We know there is the not yet. But the already means that God and His presence is powerfully available, just like Alan was saying. His presence is available to us. We have been ushered into the presence of God. We have access into the presence of God. Even now, we can have an intimate fellowship with God through His Spirit. And then, on top of that, there is also the reality that no matter how good it gets here, know that it is only just a foretaste of what is to come. It is only a foretaste of what is to come. The Spirit has been given to us as a pledge for better things. And let me just remind us of something. Monday through Saturday, when we are tempted to think that we don't have any friends, when we're tempted to think that we are in the world all alone, 
When we are tempted to think that no one understands us, no one sees us, no one feels our pain, no one can identify with where I'm at, you don't, you don't, people don't comprehend my struggle, remember that God has sealed you, that God has united you to Christ, that you have in Christ a friend that sticks closer than a brother, that you have in Christ God's empowering presence. Remember when you are tempted to think that your sins will have the mastery over you. Remember, remind yourself that you do not belong to yourself, but that you belong to another, that your life is no longer your own, and so glorify God with your body because you can. Remember that when you are threatened to be swept along in this world, that is just utterly being given over to debauchery and dissipation and excess, remember that His seal over you assures that He will keep you, protect you, and preserve you to the very end. And remember, in times where our minds and our affections are most in tune with what God is doing through His Spirit in our lives, when everything seems to be going right, everything is good, lockstep, holy, you're blessed, you're spirit-filled, you're l- submitting to your husband, you're loving your wife, you're, shepherd, you're, you're parenting your children in a godly way, you're, you're, you're serving in the church, you're being, your gifts are being used. Remember that that is just a foretaste of what is ultimately to come And remember, brothers and sisters, that we share together in this experience and that this should make up our fellowship with one another. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, help us. We need uh, not just to know about the Spirit, but God, we so desperately need the reality of the Spirit so that we get away just from theory and we actually come into reality. Father, we need to experience the Spirit's work in our lives. Thank You for taking the initiative. Thank You for exercising Your sovereign prerogative to deliver us, to sanctify us. Would have been enough, Lord, if You would simply have saved us. But you don't leave us to ourselves and then you don't leave us ill-equipped. But you also make us adequate. You also give us your sufficient grace, all sufficient grace, to keep us, to preserve us. Father, to conform us more and more into the image of your Son, to live these Christ-centered lives to which, God, you are calling us to live. Thank you, God, for so abundantly being faithful to us, for so abundantly providing us with all that we need for life and godliness. And it's in the name of your precious, redeeming Son that we pray. Amen.